Pray with me. Loving God, we ask that indeed we would feast at the welcome table, that we'd be able to prepare the welcome, that we'd be able to knead it and bake it and drink it, to make it a reality just as you would if you were the head chef looking over all of us, that we might feast on your word together, be nourished by it, energized and empowered. Be with us in our thinking and our speaking in the meditations of all our hearts. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was a dinner invitation that you didn't want to pass up. You knew that after you had been there, your heart would be lighter, your stomach would be happy, your taste buds would have been tickled, and you would go home with a new look on life. It was a dinner invitation that you didn't want to pass up because there was hospitality abounding and because the food was always good. Not in an over-the-top, ostentatious way, but in a way that fed your stomach as well as your soul. There was a way in which you were welcomed in so that someone actually looked you in the eyes and said, come on in. They found you a drink and a good place to sit. And you could smell the aromas of the baking bread or the lamb that had been prepared just right with the herbs. There was good wine and good juice and good sparkling water <laughs> ready for everyone to drink. It was because these two sisters worked so well together. Mary made you feel like it was the best place for you to be, that she had been waiting all week for you and just couldn't wait to see you and talk with you. She held you in her gaze as if she would not let you go, as if you were the most important person in the world. And you felt that way whenever you were in her presence. She was the first one to lead in the singing, the first one to get the dancing going. She made it all work so that it was one big fun time. And Martha, Martha could cook like nobody else. And you knew she had planned the menu out for days, weeks in advance. And she had it down to every single detail. The little sprinklings that went over the top of the tomatoes and the powdered sugar on the dessert. All the herbs and the seasonings were just right. But if you spent some time with them, you realized it wasn't always harmonious. Sometimes there was a little friction between the sisters. Because Martha was such a great taskmaster, she could come up with an idea and think about the 20 steps to make it happen. Mary was the kind of woman who would get lost with the butterflies out in the field and be gone for hours and you didn't know where she had gone. There was nothing wrong with either one of them. They were both wonderful people. In fact, in many ways, their strengths became their weaknesses. You know how someone who can really plan something and get to a direction can sometimes, when you're on a road trip, be so intent about the destination that they miss some special side trips along the way. Perhaps a restaurant that you could have stopped at, or some wildflowers that would have given you a new perspective on God's creation. Or sometimes people are so great at being in the moment and taking you on a journey you didn't even expect, but they never get anything done. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, 
But that was what went on in Mary and Martha's house. You love them both. Martha was the one you could depend on. And Mary was the one that Oscar Hammerstein would write about later, that you can't keep a moonbeam on the sand, you can't catch a wave upon the shore. <laughs> you see, when John tells a story similar to this, he tells it a little bit differently. Jesus doesn't actually chastise Martha. He chastises Judas, who happened to be there as well, and also their brother, Lazarus. Now, Lazarus is the silent partner in all of the Mary Martha stories. We don't hear much about him except that he died prematurely after a sickness, and Jesus brought him back to life, which brings up some questions about how the resurrection worked later for Jesus. But there was the way that John tells a similar kind of story is that Mary was the one with the costly perfume that she poured lavishly over Jesus in welcoming him. The pure nard, this amber ointment that was used for special occasions all over the Levant and the Middle Eastern world. And so Judas happened to be there, and he said, Jesus, why do you let her do this? This is the equivalent of a day laborer's yearly wages. We could sell it and help the poor. It's a good social justice question that Judas was asking. Now, John has a little commentary and says, well, that actually Judas was just robbing because he took care of the purse for the disciples. That's his commentary. I want to leave that aside for a moment. Judas asked a very important question. Why use this expensive oil when it could go for the poor? I bet some of you would have that question if you were there as well. And Jesus says something that should disturb us all. He says, the poor you're always going to have with you, but you won't always have me with you. I don't know if you've ever taken one of these personality type tests, like the Myers-Briggs. You all know the Myers-Briggs? Myers-Briggs is one of these personality tests where you answer all sorts of questions, and it sorts you into four aspects of your personality. How you like to interact socially, how you like to take in information, how you process information, and how you like to order your world. And after you take the test, there are 16 different archetypes that they pair up with Jungian ideas, and it's supposed to tell you something about yourself. Many of you have done it in your workplace, perhaps even in your family, and you may know I'm an INFJ right here, which I like to say is less than 1% of the population. <laughs> And I love living in a place where you can be sitting in a coffee shop and someone will say, well, I don't know if it'll work because I'm an ENFP and he's an ISTJ and it may not mesh. And you think, ah, I'm in Cambridge again. <laughs> so there are other personality profiles. There's the Enneagram, which is a big circle with nine points that's based on old Sufi models. Some of you may have taken that. There's the DISC profile, which is used in a lot of corporations. I actually had a church give me the DISC profile to see if I would be a suitable minister for them. They ask you all sorts of random questions and then tell you things that you have no idea how they got them from the questions. I, I learned that DISC stands for dominance, uh, influence, submission, and coercion, or something like that, which made me glad that I passed that church by. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the Cosmo quiz or the People Magazine quiz, that some of us might take on occasion but never admit it to our friends. I often wonder when historians go back and look to the late 20th century and the early 21st century, what they'll make of all these personality profile tests. 
trying to put ourselves in boxes to understand how we might interact with one another. One of my friends thinks that they're abusive because they put us too tightly into pigeonholes when we need to have some fluidity about understanding our personalities as God made them and as they've been nurtured by the lives we live. Well, personality profiles have not escaped church life or spiritual people. In your pews, you have a little handout that is with the pew pads, and pass it on down if you don't have it. There are about five to six a pew. If you need one, hold them up and someone can give you one. But on it, it says a little bit about different personality types as defined by a couple of different people. One of them is Corinne Ware, who says that there are thinkers. That's a spiritual type. You like to be in books and ideas. There are contemplatives who like to deepen into their experience of the moment. There are mystics, I think this is what Mary was, who are more heart-centered and emotionally uh, geared for what goes on in worship and other things in spirituality, transformed and transfixed by the mystery of things. There are the prophets among us who think that social justice is the most important thing they could be doing. Bless you. There's also something that Marsha McPhee, a worship guru that Lisa, Susan, and I went to hear earlier this fall, she talks, she has some interesting words, thruster. People who come to worship and they want action. They want it to propel you forward. People who just hang there. Everything's going to work out, no rush, it's all going to be fine. Shapers, I think this is what Martha was, people who want to make sure everything is ordered and if it feels that way, then God must be in heaven. And then this is an interesting term, swingers. People who are able to go from moment to moment, from one thing to the next, wandering all over the place. Marsha McPhee tells us that when we plan worship, we should have all four of these types in mind, perhaps all eight types in mind. I should tell you it's a challenge. The reason I bring this up is because I think we see some different types in these stories. We see Mary, who is the dreamer, the person who can stay in the moment no matter what. There's Martha, who is the planner, the, the keeping things going, looking out ahead. There's Judas, the prophet, who wants to see us take care of our social justice needs and the poor among us, if you discount John's aside. There's also then Lazarus, the quiet one, perhaps contemplative, perhaps a book-learning person who stays in his library again and again. I'm aware when we come to this table, when we come to worship, we have all those types going on. And sometimes they clash up against each other. And sometimes when we come to the table of grace, they work in perfect harmony. It's a facet of community to honor all those different types and to figure out the strengths and weaknesses. And I've given you some homework to take home because the biggest compliment you can give a preacher is if the sermon stays with you, even in hard ways. So I invite you to take there. There's even an online quiz you can take to figure out what spiritual type you are. I'm aware that when we come to this table, there are Judases and Marys and Marthas and Lazaruses, and much more. And I like to think that Luke didn't tell us the whole story, because Martha comes out looking pretty bad in this story. And my guess is if you're like me, a lot of us here are Marthas. We shape things, 
When I sit down to meditate, I can't get the list out of my head. They keep on going, planning, thinking about all of you and everything else in my life. I think what Jesus is saying, when we come into the presence of God, we've got to be a little bit more like Mary. We've got to lose ourselves to the moment. We've got to give it all over. We've got to shut out some of the outside world and the lists that are going on in our heads so that we can dream big dreams for God. So that we can be fed and nourished in the moment as if it goes on for eternity. And if you're anything like me, that's a hard thing to do. But I want for us to keep trying to do that in worship. As we come to this table, as we receive the meal, that we might grasp a little of eternity. We might grasp a little bit of heaven. That we might see the expansiveness and graciousness that God gives us again and again. So once again, when you come up to this table today for the meal, I invite you to take a big piece, we'll give you a big piece of bread, as a prayer for whatever you need this morning. This is a cup of blessing and a cup of grace. That you might not be distracted and annoyed just as Martha was, but somehow find something deep and eternal that will feed you the rest of your week, perhaps even the rest of your life. Amen.